uh, Joel Ward with Logan Couture and Jonas Donskoy. They were pretty good together in the playoffs last year, played a lot together. Uh, the third line, though, is a new one. Uh, Melker Carlson, Patrick Marlowe, and Tomas Hurdle. Hurdle and Marlowe have played together. Uh, Marlowe and Carlson have played together. Uh, according to Corsica, and I wrote about this today, uh, which you can find on fearthefin.com, our fine website, um, Hurdle and Carlson have not played a minute together at even strength in the regular season or postseason, according wow. to Corsica. I was surprised to learn that, too. Um, huh. you know. yeah, that's really surprising to me. And then the fourth line, uh, Michael Haley, Matt Nieto, Tommy Wingles, and Chris Tierney rotating in together. Uh, if I had to guess tomorrow, I think Haley's going to draw in for Nieto based on how they went in. Absolutely, he's going to. Yeah. On line rushes, uh, Nieto actually skated as a defenseman alongside Dylan DeMello in five-on-five drills. I wouldn't read into that being a position change for Matt Nieto. I think that was just a numbers game. The Sharks had four lines of forwards. They wanted to have a fourth pair of defensemen to go through the drills and uh, Haley was going to play tomorrow. So they tried Nieto there. I, I don't think we're seeing a reverse Brent Burns here, although stranger things have happened, but um, things have happened. <laughs> you do. But, yeah, I do like, I like the new lines though. I think, you know, they have struggled a bit and if you want to jump start it, I think this is certainly a way to do so. I think, you know, once Nieto draws back in for Haley and even with Haley on the fourth line, it's probably the deepest, you know, they could, have you know spread out their lineup with Timo Meyer still on the mend, uh, moving Bodker up to the top line. I think gives them some speed that they didn't have necessarily. And you know, as I mentioned, Couture, Donskoy, and Ward were very good together during the postseason. And I I think Hurdle and Marlowe can have some chemistry. You know, Marlowe scored that goal in Pittsburgh. He had an empty net goal against Columbus, but I think they'd like him to do more five on five. And Tomas Hurdle has a dominant impact on his teammates' puck possession. You know they. That his line mates have the puck a heck of a lot more with him on the ice than with him off of the ice. So I think, you know, all things considered, it's a pretty ideal uh, combination of what the Sharks could ice, you know, other than Michael Haley drawing in, of course. Okay. Sorry about that. We had some uh, technical difficulties with my internet. So let's, uh, let's reinvite, uh, reinvite Marcus here. This is going to be great. Woo. Hey, sorry, my internet died. Uh, okay, we're back. Marcus All good. Is back, I think. Okay, so anyway, so anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, last last thing that I heard, and I'll go back and cut this together in a stupid audacity later, uh, was about the uh, yeah. This is about as deep a lineup as the Sharks can have right now. I would tend to agree with that until uh, Timo Meyer comes back, uh, and I know. The, that second line was really good in the playoffs. I really like the the Ward, Donskoy, and Couture line. That's really good. I think that's a really good third line. I really I, I like having Carlson up there with uh, with with Marlow and Hurdle. You know, I've Hurdle on the third line as the centers. I think what makes this the best possible hockey team that it can be. Bodker seems like a good fit with the Joes because he's fast and can go chase down pucks, which is. What they need him to do while, you know, Thornton and Pavelski can worry about keeping, you know, puck possession, basically. So I think this makes the most sense of any lineup that they could possibly use. So, you know, I'm not super happy about Haley playing tomorrow if that is what they end up doing, but it's not really a big surprise. And quite frankly, uh, Michael Haley is so much better than uh, Jared Bowl that uh, the Sharks still win that trade-off anyway, in my opinion. I mean, Michael Haley's not a great hockey player, but it's not, not even a competition oh, as to yeah, who's better. I, I, and in that limited game, you know, that limited action against the Islanders, he did look not awful against the Islanders right. on that fourth line. And I think, you know, playing with Tierney and Wingles, he's going to be playing with good players and will have an opportunity to not be a, 
you know, a loss while introducing some toughness into that lineup. So, you know, and then no changes on defense, of course. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens there as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a drop off between I'm the, clearly between Haley and Nieto, but it's not, it, it is not backbreaking. It's really not. Uh, and if it was, then this team would have much, much bigger problems. Anyway. Yes. So we'll, we'll, we'll suck it up. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about goaltending a little bit. So we talked uh, briefly about that Pittsburgh game where the Sharks did play really well and lost, uh, I mean, in large part because Martin Jones just did not have a very good night. And really uh, he hasn't had a very good season uh, to, to this point. Um, you know, it's only, only been six games. He's only played in five. You know, I, I'm certainly not suggesting that it's time to be, you know, overly concerned about the goaltending situation, but is there anything that, you've seen or anything that maybe, you know, uh, some of the Sharks have pointed out that they're seeing like a, a potential weakness in this game that they want to, that they want to work on going forward. Well, he wasn't at DeBoer wasn't asked about it today and I didn't speak to Martin Jones. So I'm not sure uh, what the team sees. I, I think the thing with Jones is, you know, Detroit, you can't really fault him on any of those goals. I think there were a lot of defensive miscues and I think you could say the same against Pittsburgh, but you know, I, I, I saw this put well on Twitter when some Leafs fans were talking about their own struggles in that in Toronto. But, you know, at some point, an, an NHL goalie has to be able to make some of those saves. And I think at least one of those goals against Pittsburgh, Martin Jones probably wants to have back. You know, yes, Paul Martin and, and Justin Braun looked like the Keystone Cops on defense when they both tried to jump at the puck and batted it out right out to Evgeny Malkin, who, you know, he's in the high slot. He's one of the best players in the world, but we've seen Martin Jones can play at the level of, of one of the best goalies in the world. And I think, you know, yes, I think it's partially on defensive miscues, but he's got to be good enough to bail them out when they do have those miscues. And we've seen him be, uh, be good enough. I don't know if it's anything in particular. I know, you know, on the broadcast against the Red Wings, they made a big deal about how he was beat high side, high on his glove side on two of the three goals. You know, I think I think every goalie probably has trouble, like unless they have an excellent glove, probably will have trouble with some of those shots. And I think maybe teams are picking that side more often than not. But, you know, I'm not really seeing anything from Jones that's that's standing out. He still looks very calm in that. He still he looks like, you know, Martin Jones. It's just I think they're letting it they're letting up a lot of pretty high quality chances and he just hasn't been up to stuff on them yeah uh my my general theory would just be that yeah i mean it's a you know really a small sample size and it's not uh not anything to uh to get to get too worked up about just yet um and i would agree that it does seem like uh he's he's faced a, a fairly high number of those you know high danger chance type uh, type situations because of some pretty bad defensive miscues. Um, yeah, I'm looking on Corsica right now, and Martin Jones has faced uh, 24 high danger shots. That's two, three, four, five, six, uh, eighth in the NHL. Um, he hasn't allowed any of the low danger shot attempts he's, he's faced. Uh, and I think his, yeah, I mean, you know, his high danger save percentage is seven nine one seven. That's like you know, not good. Uh, medium is eight five two four. That's definitely uh, that's yeah the third worst in the NHL. So that's really the problem is those you know the, the medium danger shots, which I could not draw on a on a rink board for you right now if you handed it to me. But that should give a small amount of context. Um, 
I don't really like to evaluate a goalie based on one game because I am mm-hmm. not a goalie coach and I don't know enough about goaltending to really make, I think, a fair evaluation. I know we, we kind of throw out this, oh, man, oh, he'd like to have that one back. And I know that, you know, just by watching hockey, yeah, you get a pretty good sense of what should be savable, what should yeah. not be savable. But the, the fact of the matter is that the difference between a really good night and like an eh night is, you know, making one mistake. So right. for me, it's more about the package deal. And in over five games, he's not been good. He has a sub 900 save percentage at even strength. That's not good enough. Uh, you know, at the same time last year through his first five games, he was, you know, the best goalie in the, on the planet. And uh, yeah. eventually he was not the best goalie on the planet. So it, it's really could just be a, a situation where he's going to go on a run here where he, you know, doesn't allow more than a goal a game for five games. And we're going to forget about this. You know, if it's still this like this, after 10 games, then okay, maybe it's time to actually see what's up and try and try and fix something. But the, the fact of the matter is that uh, the Sharks don't have another option anyway. Yeah, so, I think. Uh, and I think the Barton Jones sucks. They're going to lose. That's what's going to happen, and they're screwed. So Agreed. And I, I think, you know, that, you know, it could also be pointing back to, you know, you talk about not another option behind him. For the longest time last year, he didn't have an option behind him. And Alex Stawak was not able to provide that rest for him. Yes, Reimer provided it down the stretch, but. You know, Jones played the most hockey he's played in his career last season. This could be an issue of fatigue. It could be coming off of a short summer. Uh, you know, we'd have, I, I agree with you. We're going to have to give it more time before we can make a distinct conclusion either way. I think it's definitely too early to be worried. But, you know, if, if this play persists on this homestand, I think the Sharks have, have some pretty big concerns in that. Right. Uh, all right, let's move on to Dylan DeMello. That's uh the seventh defender right now for the Sharks, you know, played quite a bit last year, be uh, filling in for injuries, was the seventh defender during the playoffs, uh, didn't really get any time there. Uh, so we found out today, uh, you did obviously, that uh, Dylan DeMello is not el- waiver eligible, which um, kind of adds an interesting wrinkle to this whole thing. One, it explains why Dylan DeMello is still with the Sharks and not down with the Barracuda. Uh, doesn't really explain why he hasn't gotten any playing time other than obviously he is not in the top six, that part obviously I understand. So it seems like the Sharks basically have three options at this point. They either need to play him, uh, waive him, or they need to trade him. And it's seeming, to, from my perspective, uh, trading him is the only real real option here if, if they can. Uh, so what, what's kind of your perception of that uh, from talking to the coaching staff? What, what, what does it seem like they're wanting to do if they gave any indication? Well, they like him. They, they, they've said every time they're asked about him, they said how they trust him. They say he's a reliable player. Um, they can use him. I think they want to give him a game coming up here. Pete DeVore said it's getting close to that point where, uh, um, where they're going to need to, to play him. Uh, you know, according to, I can't remember if it was cap friendly or NHL numbers. Uh, one of the two, uh, DeMello is not listed as waiver eligible, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was mentioned on. This makes for excellent radio, but I digress. Um, you know, and that's, I, I had not known that. And that certainly is a wrinkle that makes his start to the year make a lot more sense as to why he's not down with the Barracuda. Uh, I think, you know, maybe there's a chance he gets a, a game on their homestand with a conditioning assignment. I'm not exactly sure how conditioning assignments work. I'd have to brush up on my CBA knowledge, but I think they could send him down for like one or two games for a conditioning assignment. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, he's probably, you know, at this point, he's probably a trade ship. He's a pretty reliable young defenseman and he, 
He can, you know, play when called upon. He hasn't been called upon yet. And based on those first six games, I'd imagine he probably has more use to the organization as a trade chip. I will say, though, it's pretty clear they do not want to lose him for free. Injuries are going to happen at some point, and the Sharks know they're going to need to rely on Dylan DeMello to fill in for those injuries. Maybe you see him traded a little closer to the deadline once, once things shake out, and maybe if Mirko Mueller establishes himself down in the AHL with the Barracuda a little more. Uh, I think they'd like to play him, but you know he's mostly being frozen out by a numbers game. It's probably going to take some more poor play from some of the Sharks' other defensemen for him to draw into the lineup. Uh, it seems like the Sharks' top six has a pretty long leash, even though they've had some of those struggles. I think DeBoer recognizes that it's it's so early in the season, you can't really make any conclusions uh, either way on how any of the players have played. So, you know, I think ultimately DeMello could and probably should get traded if he can't play, but obviously he's probably one of the best insurance policies in the league in terms of seventh defenseman, and the Sharks don't want to give that up for free. Yeah, he's only making six hundred fifty thousand dollars this year and next year. He's on an RFA until uh, after the twenty seven eighteen season, so that should make him, quite frankly, pretty valuable as a trade piece. Um, and I think waiting, obviously, until you get a really nice offer is, you know, that's the the move. Um, and I think once you get close to the trade deadline, there will be teams that are desperate enough that to add a little bit of depth that they might get something uh, a solid return for him. Uh, you know, they're. They're not trading Brent Burns, obviously, Paul Martin, Vlasic, Braun, whatever. Uh, I know the guy that people are going to, and this is going to happen, are going to be in my mentions about is Brendan Dillon. <laughs> and no, no, Brendan Dillon is better than Dillon DeMello. I do, that, that is what it is. And you're just going to need to accept that. It's yeah. going to be all right. He is better. Yes, he costs more. He's only two years older. He's locked up until 2020. That is what's happening. Dillon DeMello needs to be traded. That's the bottom line. So... And, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do hang on to him. I think he he represents, you know, I mentioned as an insurance policy. With that upcoming expansion draft, I'm not sure where uh, DeMello sits in terms of protection, if he's automatically protected. Uh, I think because he's played, this would be his second NHL season, I think he's okay uh, in terms of uh, expansion draft protections, in terms of automatically being protected. I'm not sure, but, you know, if – and if he is automatically protected, he offers an insurance policy because they're probably, you know, I, I, it's probably too early to talk expansion, but I think it's a fair bet to say that they're going to lose at least one of their defensemen uh, in the expansion draft to Las Vegas. I think there's just, there's, they have one of the best defensive cores in the league. A lot of them have good contracts. I, they're probably going to end up exposing one or two defensemen in the expansion draft. And I think if DeMello can be retained without giving a slot, or even if he does, is given a slot he's young enough and cheap enough where you know like you said that's a very valuable piece right absolutely so we're going to keep an eye on that as we move forward uh let's talk about the power play that uh has not been super great uh throughout the start of the season to put it mildly um i think that their percentage wise are somewhere around middle of the pack like 18th or so in the league uh is, is there anything that you're seeing? I mean, I've already written about this. This is on our website, fearthefin.com. You should go read it. Uh, that it, I certainly don't think that it's time to, to worry or panic um, because we did this last year at this exact same point last year, <laughs> and I said it was fine. And then guess what? It ended up being the third best or second best power play in the league. And so it's probably still fine because the underlying numbers as far as uh, shot generation, um, 
really suggests to me that this is we're not really seeing anything different. It doesn't really look any worse to me, uh, you know, eye test wise than than it did last year. So for me, it's more more likely than not just a, a matter of bad luck than it is poor play. Um, you know, you've obviously watched the same games I have. What do, what do you think about the power play so far? Yeah, I think we should freak out and burn everything to the ground. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think they're fine, honestly. I think, you know, that top unit, they just, they move the puck so well and they generate so many chances. I think they, they dealt with some some penalty kills that were, were pressuring the puck a lot and maybe they didn't adjust incredibly well to those penalty kills. I know that the Red Wings were particularly fond of that on and the other day, and as were the Penguins who frustrated them throughout the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I think, you know, they still have a very good power play. That top unit is still very effective. Uh, you know, maybe, and this is a, this is a time, though, I think when, you're, when your top unit isn't scoring, your power play is going to struggle if your second unit doesn't score. And, you know, last year they got so much of their scoring from, from the top unit compared to the second unit. I think the second unit, just anecdotally, observationally, I think they, they look better than they did last year. They, they seem to be passing the eye test. Um, you know, there's the things... A few, I think usage of players is interesting on that second power play. I, I think ultimately the Sharks are probably better served going with four forwards on both units and having one defenseman yeah. up top. I, I think, also do. I think Schlemko being the defenseman up top on that second unit, uh, you know, because, you know, Vlasics and him have kind of been switching around. I just think that top unit, partially why it's so effective is because you have four forwards who are all very good passers. And I think – you know, if you have a power play with four forwards, Schlemko's your defenseman, but you have Bodker, Hurdle, Donskoy, and Joel Ward, you know, those are those are four guys that can move the puck. Those are four guys that can pass well. You know, maybe Ward clogs the middle, plays that Pavelski role, and Bodker, Donskoy, and Hurdle are all good passers. So I think it's a it's a matter of of usage. He's he rotated his four forwards and three forward spots on that second unit power play. I, I still think he's gonna end up using Vlasic there. And I think they can be good with Vlasic there, but I think ultimately, you know, when when your top unit's struggling and your second power play unit don't score a ton, that's what's going to happen when you're, you know, at the, this early in the season when the top unit's not scoring. Yeah, I think to, uh, to me it's just, uh, and this is also anecdotally. I should, I would like to actually look into this a little bit. It feels like uh, uh, Vlasic is taking more shots this year than he has in years past, and they've all looked pretty terrible because he's not good <laughs> at shooting the puck. Um, and it's just one of those things where it kind of feels like the, the power play is pressing a little bit where yes. they're taking shots that they shouldn't necessarily take because they have it in their mind, oh, we need to generate more shots. We need to ge-. And to me, it's like, no, you actually don't. I, I know we look at shot generation as a means to say, oh, the power play is playing well, it's not playing well. And while that's true, that's more of a result of a good philosophy rather than being a good philosophy. If you look at a, a power play like uh, uh, Washington Capitals, which is you know, the best system in the NHL, uh, the the goal is not just get pucks to net, get pucks to net, get pucks to net. It's it's not about that. It's about getting a puck to a high danger area and taking a good shot. Yeah, uh, I know that you know. Obviously, you know we criticize guys like Randy Carlisle who talk a lot about like shot quality. You know, in a way to dismiss possession stats. And it's the the thing is is that there is something to be said about shot quality, just not in the way you know a man who doesn't know how to use a toaster would say. It's just. <laughs> You're on the power play. You've got an you've got more guys on the ice than the other team, and if you're not taking that to your advantage by adjusting the way you play your game, then you should be on the power play unit. And what makes the Sharks so good, and what I know sometimes frustrates fans, is that they do pass the puck a lot. You pass the other team into submission, and then you take a really good shot. That's how it's going to work. That's how it has always yeah. worked. 
I agree. And I think, I think that first unit does it a lot better than that second unit. I think, you know, that's an interesting point you raise about their pressing. I think, you know, second unit, this is all anecdotally, I'd have to look more at the film, but it feels like that they're, they're not creating odd man opportunities as much. And when you're on a power play, it's all about, you know, you're already five on four. It's already an odd man opportunity, but it's all about finding an odd, an even greater odd man opportunity, creating a three on one, you know, even if it's in the corner, like luring a guy out of position and making another guy open in another spot. And it really doesn't feel like the second unit is doing that. They have the, I think they have the pieces there, even with Vlasic. I think he's, I think he's a good, a good passer of the puck. I think, Yep. In the offensive zone, he's kind of underrated there. I think he can effectively and efficiently move the puck there. He certainly um, thinks he is. Yeah, not as well as Schlemko, of course, but I think you know your your second unit power play could be capable with him there. He put up points on the on the power play last year, so I you know a lot of those were secondary assists, but a lot of he had a lot of primary points too. So I think you know they have the pieces there, but I I agree. I think you know they may be pressing a little bit, and you know they Kachur mentioned.